I've just about had enough of you. I'm more than machine. A man made out of tears. I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and subtongues. Dialects and subtongues. Is everyone here? Is everyone ready? Okay, then have you got everyone got coffee? Yeah, good. Okay, right, let's do it. Time for another episode of 50 Years of Shit Robots with Matt Brown, that's me, and Stephen Murray. That's him. Good morning. Stephen, you have sent me a very strange video this week, which in, in, in some tangential way links to the film that we're going to be talking about, uh, which is First Spaceship on Venus. But what is the video of, first of all? It's a robot called Amika which has been, should I use the word, peddled? As, <laughs> yeah, it is definitely being peddled. It is being peddled, isn't it? As, as an AI robot, a humanoid robot in its first uh, in its first public demo, uh, people got to talk to it and react with it. And it looks, I think, it's a step forward. It it's looks great. Incredible. It's no. incredible because the last thing I saw of this nature was like a, a disembodied head. I can't was think it, what, what it was. It's like, almost like a weird doll. You were the wobbly jaw. Yeah. Yeah. And this like the looks, skin was coming off. Yeah, it was very strange. And this one looks like it looks like the iRobot robot, only more like or only better. Oh, it does. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the same sort of same colouring it's got. The thing about it for me is it doesn't sort of push that uncanny valley button. No, it doesn't. It's sli- it slightly hovers around it, but it doesn't push the button. Yeah. So essentially it is it's a like a sort of androidy body, like Ava. Yes, exactly. With a hyper-realistic human face yeah. and head. And there's a the, the the bit that I saw of it was there was um its sort of creator was being interviewed next to next to the robot, and the robot was just sort of like looking around and yeah. sort of like uh it almost I was thinking that's like Bjork or something, isn't it? It's like a sort of a celeb- a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> sort of is a bit sort of like you know a little bit of a way with the fairies sort of thing i still ca- I can't quite believe it's not cgi it looks like it could be cgi but i suppose it isn't is it no no it's not at all no it's real but the other article that i sent you was was from the daily mail yeah and in the daily mail the uh the, the interviewer just asks amika stupid questions like do a tongue twister in japanese and then do it twice and then, what's the weather? What's the weather like now? Tell me what the weather's like in French. Okay. Tell me what the weather's like. and it's just like, oh, come on. But you might be worried that they might have just pre-programmed it with like lots of phrases. Yeah, I get. Actually, yeah, you know okay, I, mean? I get you. I'm not here to defend yeah. Daily Mail journalists. I'll put that on record. Now, the sort of tangential link to the film that we're doing this week, um, which is the first spaceship on Venus, is. That the ro- there's a robot in this film called Omega, and you were saying that the very first question it is asked in the film is, "What's the weather going to be like?" Right. So that is the link, which is a good observation, I think. Yeah. Thank you. If you want to look at the a robot Omega, then just check in the show notes. We'll link to the YouTube video and even the Daily Mail article as well, so you can see the silly journalist asking his silly questions. <laughs> Right, so let's talk about the film First Spaceship on Venus, which is an East German slash Polish production. And it's our first first East German film, I think, isn't it? 
Yeah, we it is. had one before. I mean, so I, I suppose we wouldn't necessarily, we would only have had one sort of post 46, 47, whenever East Germany came into existence. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. So we're only sort of like, you know, 13 or 14 years into East Germany being a thing. But it is a really interesting film, this. Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah, I loved it. Everything about it. Yeah. I I mean, it's one of those films, I I, I mean, if I never saw it again, I wouldn't be sad. But But I really sort of enjoyed watching it. I think it was making connections as well and thinking to yourself, God, that's the first time that's been done. We didn't do this in the Western science fiction films and yeah. all of those kind of things. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, well done. Yeah. Uh, for the sake of science fiction, I think there are pivotal moments that push the narrative along and give and give science fiction new areas to explore. One is obviously the, the exploding of the nuclear bomb. Mm. Another one is the launch on the 4th of October 1957 in Russia of Sputnik, wow. which was a satellite. This was launched into space as, a, as an experiment to see if uh, the pressure within inside the chamber would, would persist. It gave off a signal, yeah, uh, which anybody on the planet could pick up. It orbited the Earth every 96 minutes, and the fact that it passed over the U, uh, United States of America seven times a day worried the Americans. Right, because they uh, thought this, it might be spying. Yes, they thought it, well, it, they, they thought it could be spying, and it, if, if not, then it was definitely the potential in future for spying. So we're in the sort of midst of the Cold War. America's gone through its, you witch know, hunts. the communist, yeah, the, the McCarthy witch hunts. And you sort of imagine that films would be less optimistic, would you? Like they would reflect the sort of the suspicions, ah, the suspicious no. things a bit more. Well, that's quite interesting because in America they did because they had things like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Whereas in uh, Russia, and especially with uh, the first spaceship on Venus, that was incredibly optimistic. So they were riding on the back of the optimism of getting into space, finally we're in there, and it started. It was literally the moment the space uh, age started and the space race between the USSR and America. And the USSR would carry on with Yuri Gagarin. He did his first orbit of the Earth in 1961, so the year after this film came out. So I guess it must have been yeah. what people were, were thinking about, what people were talking about, what people were excited about. But optimistically for Russia, not for America. No. So in America, we still we still have films like uh, It Came From Outer Space. And again, I've mentioned Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is a direct response to um, the American feeling that there are Russians under the bed. What about, I suppose, even films that we've watched, like The Day the Earth Stood Still? That's not very optimistic, is it? No, it's, like, it's 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 a warning. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. is. It's I don't not... know whether that film's it's is is that America warning itself or is it a message for the world? Don't know. But this film is like on Prozac or something, isn't it? It's like um, oh, it's... everyone's just incredibly like optimistic and it's shiny and woozy with the future. It, it is. is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But satellites were nothing new. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke came up with this idea in 1945 and mapped it out to the degree that, you know, he said it would change telecommunications and the media. God, you just hate it when someone is just so right, aren't they? I know. I've done a little bit of background research on what the state of of the GDR in, in 1960. And that's partly because I happened to listen to 
a brilliant writer slash journalist called Katja Hoyer, who's just published a book called Beyond the Wall. Um, she was born in East Germany and I think was four or five when the Berlin Wall came down. And so it's basically a sort of like a history of, of East Germany and it is really, really good. Totally recommend it. But in 1960, there was this thing called Republic Flucht, which was is people fleeing East Germany. And in 1960, and that's the year that the first spaceship on Venus came out, they suffered their worst yearly exodus of citizens, 200,000 crossed over the border. And then in 1961, so a year later, the Berlin Wall was erected. So but that what, was between East Germany and West Germany. That's right, yeah. And one of the things that Katja Hoyer talks about in Beyond the Wall is the fact that, I mean, whilst obviously there was a lot of, um, a lot of <laughs> negative aspects to life, in East Germany, n- notably things like the Stasi and the mm. you know the secret police and being spied on and all that sort of stuff, that it was a really idealistic society in some respects. So there was a highly educated population, regulated wages, um, things like like if you were pregnant and in university, they sorted it out so you could continue studying. And oh, there wow. was a crash. You know, there was lots of things like that that happened. And I feel that in many ways that sort of idealism is captured in this film. Yeah, it has that feel, doesn't it? Yeah. It's an incredibly international film, I think, as well. Hugely international. Yeah. But just a little tiny bit of biography about the film and a little bit of plot. The film, the the version I saw saw it is First Spaceship on Venus, but that's the sort of cut that was for America. Is that right? Yeah, that was, it came into America and it was distributed by Crown International Pictures in America and they dealt mostly with drive-ins and it had a massive distribution in America, huge. It ran for months and it was a a double feature with the kaiju film Varang the Unbelievable. (laughs) I love that. That's so great, isn't it? Um, so it was called something different, wasn't it, in, in East Germany? Yeah, it was called The Silent Star. The Schweingenstern! I really did try to pronounce <laughs> some of these, and I just... Especially the company that created this film, which is DEFA, I could yeah. not pronounce what that was. So the original film was uh, adapted from Stanislav Lem's novel, The Astronauts. We know him, don't we, because he wrote Solaris. He did write Solaris, yeah. So in East Germany, the title is The Silent Star. It came to America as First Spaceship on Venus, but also it had it had a couple of other titles, which were Planet of the Dead, which probably gives away too much what's going on, I suppose. Yeah, well, it does, yeah, completely. But the other title was Spaceship Venus Does Not Reply. <laughs> <laughs> so very briefly, the plot it is that it's so so the film is from 1960 but it's set in the future wow it's set in 1985 uh, <laughs> and um after some sort of excavations in the gobi desert a mysterious artifact is uncovered that is called the spool and it's found to be made of something that isn't found on earth and it's linked to the tunguska explosion of 1908 which actually did happen. It did happen. This is this is an actual yeah. thing that happened, which was a 12 megaton explosion that happened in Russia near the Tunguska River. So it uh, flattened an estimated 80 million trees in an area of 2,000 square kilometres. Three people may have died in the event, but it's thought 
that the explosion, or at the time it was, it was generally generally attributed to a meteor airburst. Yeah. But in this film, it's sign of an, an alien invasion, and an alien spaceship caused this explosion and, and left ejected, behind the spool. They ejected the spool. Yeah. Before they uh, crash landed into Tunguska. Yeah. So a, a, an international team of scientists discover basically that this came from Venus. And so they head up to Venus to find out what the hell is going on. And when they get up to Venus, they discover a sort of like an ancient, but, but since departed super intelligent civilization that they think were about to launch a nuclear attack on earth, but that something happened and it stopped. They discover a device on Venus, which they accidentally trigger. And then they have to try and stop it before this device sterilizes earth yeah which i mean there are some days where you think that's probably might be a blessed relief that might not it would it would be a blessed relief (laughs) so it's a slightly kind of cerebral slightly complicated plot which again like like other films we've seen kind of feels like they want to really root in actual science yeah because the whole the whole ship is run by scientists um the commander is a German. The communication specialist is African. The pilot is American. The ship's physician is a Japanese woman, and the two chief scientists are Indian and Chinese. So it's multicultural, but they're all they're all engineers and scientists. Yeah. There's no military there at all. No. So it's again, it's and as we as we were chatting about on last week's episode, this is we're in a lovely little optimistic science is going to solve everything sort of bubble, where where films have scientists as the protagonists who sort things out, drive things forward. Um, no military is involved at all. And actually the world in which this this all operates is incredibly sort of like, I mean, it's very Jerry Anderson in a way, isn't it? I oh, yeah, yeah. There's like a moon base um, and there's, <laughs> there's just lovely people on the moon base, just sort of like working and, you know, hanging out and chatting. Um, and there's... Uh, the the earth is it's like again it's so multicultural and and international and cooperative and it's kind of very utopian mm. and it's lovely even even the woman who is the um reporter for the tv she's very calming she is isn't she no sort of heavy questions no <laughs> it's really nice what was the weather like on venus <laughs> yeah exactly so we start off and we're told that it's a uh, it's being presented in total vision. Now, what is total vision? <laughs> it's another one of these things that they bring in yeah. to try and grab your attention because because they had to um, they had to come up with gimmicks. Yeah, and I think the only the only one of the gimmicks that really stuck was was uh, Panavision. I think we still use a couple of the old visions, but and each di- each director had their own. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock had his Vista Vision, uh, and they were just aware of you either you either trimmed a thirty five millimeter film down uh, so that it was wide, which was terrible because the quality was bad, or you filmed with two cameras and then you would have to project with two projectors. Mm. But that was spectacular. I mean, mm. that was pretty. But they had to rebuild cinemas or build new cinemas that could accommodate it. All the big cities would have them, and then some of the larger towns would have them. Okay. But um, if you think back to the 1960s, I, I live in a town where there were probably 12 cinemas right. in the town. Yeah. G- How going many are from, there now? Going from a f- none. Oh, one. 
go on. We've got a view cinema, which houses, you know, about four or five cinemas. Mm. But they went from flea pits right up to the huge, great, big, widescreen Audion. Uh, they were amazing. Mm. I do have the door handles from the Audion. Do you? Which are beautiful, yeah. I mean, after the place shut, I didn't just take them off. <laughs> didn't you? I, no, I bought them from a second-hand okay. place. Good. Now, the one of the first things you see in this film is the rocket. Oh my God, it's an absolute beauty. Isn't it? Yeah. It looks like a, a strange citadel. Yeah, it does, actually. More of a kind of a fantasy city than, yeah. than anything else. A little bit like Philip Stark's Juice Salif. Oh, my God. It, doesn't it look like that? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Like it's upside down. Yeah. Yeah, if you turn that, that Philip Stark juicer upside down, you'd almost have a replica of this spaceship. And also the other thing that I, I thought was interesting um, about this film, just from a technical point of view, is that really early on you've got very dramatic camera moves. Yeah. I, and I think that the way that the people come in and, and go out, the whole thing, you can see as it's like a one-track pan mm. for quite a long time and every actor's on cue to come in and it flows beautifully. Yeah. I think so as well. I thought, thought the staging of some of the bits was really yeah. excellent. It was so different from what we've seen. Yeah, felt it's a choreographed. Little, felt, felt, felt quite sort of modern in a way. Yeah, it did feel modern, actually. Yeah. One of the other things I loved about this this early bit, and this is the bit where they fi they find the spool, this ancient artifact, and then they're analysing it on Earth, trying to work out what it was, is that, is that the the spool is taken to what's called the world's largest computer, and essentially there, there's they, there's about sort of ten uh, scientists all sitting seemingly inside the computer. I thought that was lovely, and the music is quite interesting because it's it's very reminiscent of forbidden planet uh, and on the title sequence at the beginning of the silent star it's referred to as clangin 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 <laughs> like that so there's professor harringway he's like in charge of everything he's very handsome he's got a bit one of those big sort of barrelly chests and he's got the most magnificent mane of hair. Oh, it's a boof celeb. My God, it is so good, isn't it? It is. Loved him. Then the the professor you're talking about from India is Professor Sikana. Mm -hmm. And we've got the communications officer who's from Africa, who's just called Talua. You've got a pilot from Germany called Brinkman. You've got a, <laughs> a Polish technology expert called professor salric who i've just in my notes is just baldy he's <laughs> got i've got a fabulous sort of like chrome dome and the medical officer is dr ogimura so those are the those are the sort of like the key people i think but what's amazing because all of these scientists who are in this big computer analyzing the spool then go into go in the spacecraft and they all fly off to venus it was so interesting, I think, having essentially a really diverse cast. And it feels yeah. like this is the first time, and we are now, we're 1927 to 1960, so we're 33 years into our journey. And this feels like the first time we've got a properly diverse cast. In this film, we have got characters who have agency. Six years before Star Trek. Yes, which, would, which also then had a diverse cast, didn't it? The the uh, 
British director Alan Cox compared The Silent Star to the Japanese film The Mysterians, but called the former more complex and morally ambiguous. Well, they kind of all got their basis in Forbidden Planet, alien technology, but yeah. the, the aliens have, have disappeared. Yeah. So another crew member that we meet on our journey to Venus is the robot, whose name is Amiga. It's like sort of like K-9, really, isn't it? Well, Except- a lot of people have said it's a lot more like uh, R2-D2, but I would say K-9 because it's a little tank. It's a tiny, In fact, it's, it's more impressive than K-9. You know my feelings about K-9. Hey, K-9 won our competition. Oh, God, The most beloved robot in this country. But I think, yeah, it is. It's a little tank, but it looks sort of like, it's like a little dog, except it's not a little dog. It's like a little, tiny little tank with a clown face on it. I could, there is, the, that face reminds me, so I don't know whether it was Fungus the Bogeyman. Yeah. Or, or something, some cartoon with very loose-fitting teeth and a big round nose. Fungus the Bogeyman is a good shout. But because it's got a red nose that sort of lights up, and because its teeth are, are, are all like lit up, it just felt very, very clowny to me. It's detachable, though, isn't it? The ovoid, that is Omega, is detachable and is popped onto the little tank for its little whizzies round Venus. <laughs> Now, the interesting thing about this is that the the reason why they could do that is because of the rise of the transistor. That meant that you could have uh, remote control devices that were small, not only in the device, but actually in the control. So with the advent of the transistor, especially with the MOS transistor from 1959, you could, you could miniaturize things. So when this came to America... Kids love that little robot. Yeah, I can well imagine kids loving it. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's really good. So so in the film, it isn't a remote control, is it? It's like an autonomous... No, it's autonomous, yeah. Um, but, but obviously, like, uh, the filmmakers would have been using a remote control to yeah, yeah, whiz it around. Yeah, love it. So one of the other things I liked as well were uh, the space girdles that they wore for takeoff. I saw that and I was, what What the hell? What was that? I have no idea. Maybe yeah. just to stop everything from <laughs> exiting their backsides. I don't maybe, know. Maybe. So they, they travel to Venus. I, think, I thought this bit was quite boring because it was, um, there's just a lot of bonding that goes on, isn't there? Yeah. So there's a huge little storyline about... Is it Brinkman who who tries to play chess with uh, Amiga, the robot, and yeah. keeps losing? And so there's a big discussion about whether they whether they can reprogram Amiga to have a, a heart, a heart, so that so that it can like let this guy win without him knowing. Basically, to program it to be patronising. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> then they get to uh, Venus, where they discover this evidence of a, of a very sophisticated uh, race of alien and they go exploring as they're traveling around the planet they see evidence of what the the, the venusians would have looked like. like yeah oh and because they're all that's left of them is their shadows from the nuclear explosions that's right yeah which is very reminiscent of hiroshima and nagasaki yeah. which is mentioned quite a lot in the original version, but it's entirely cut out for the American version. All reference to... All reference to uh, Hiroshima. So there's lots of visual effects on Venus, which I thought were really nice. They made it look really alien. They Mm. made it look odd and bizarre. Yeah. 
and, the, and I the, like that. Yeah, I did as well. There are those melted cities. That was great. That just look weird, just look really weird. And then there's this sort of floating gas or something. Is, is it radiation, I suppose, is it? It's fumes, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know, but that looked really cool as well. So it's really dark and it's sort of purpley and... Alan Cox says that uh, he also remarked that Silent Star's images of melted cities and crystallised forest overhung by swirling clouds of gas are masterpieces of production design. Mm-hmm. I concur, Coxie. Mm, so do I, yes. Yeah. And there's a sort of like a, a sort of set piece chase that happens between it's sort of like the, the the planet almost is trying to hunt down the astronauts as they're sort of wandering around and they end up being chased up a kind of like a spirally sort of tower, tower. of Babel. Yeah, it's a bit like a Tower of Babel, isn't it? Yeah. And there's, and, the, and there's this sort of like ooze, this slime that tries to get them. Well, I wonder if that was written in the original story by Lem because yeah. um, Solaris is about a gelatinous planet that's alive. Right, okay. Stanislav Lem was a bit... He was a bit peed off because of the, a, a lot of the communist rhetoric that was put into the film. He wanted it to be more... to be broader. Yeah. I was reading that. There's a lovely quote attributed to him. It says, It practically delivered speeches about the struggle for peace... Trashy screenplay was painted, tar was bubbling, which would not scare even a child. <laughs> now, we're saying about the, the plot being sort of quite cerebral and slightly mm. complicated. There was a moment where they've discovered, like, weird little jumpy alien things uh. on the planet that they, they take back and they analyse in the spaceship. And then there's this, this sort of attack that happens, this, this ooze that kind of, like, attacks them. And then Professor Sikana, who is who is sort of like just this, he's just like a brain box, isn't he? He knows that there's a solution to what's going on and he's not quite cracked it. And he suddenly says, now everything is clear. And then he then proceeds to explain what is happening. Now everything is clear. The sphere creates an artificial force field, which strengthens the gravitation of Venus and diminishes it. At this very moment, the power is augmenting. And when the energy is inverted, the field will reverse itself. We'll be hurled into space again. And it was the most gobbledygooky sort of like <laughs> se- sequence I'd ever heard. <laughs> That's the trouble with having scientists in. If it was the military, they'd just shoot everything. Shoot everything, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I thought that was, I thought that was good. And whilst they're on the, this tower, they shoot the ooze... Yeah. Which, according to Professor Sikana, essentially kind of like sets off this chain reaction, doesn't it? It does. And it, and it re-energizes this kind of like nuclear device that's on the planet. Now I'm going to make a bit of a leap here. Go. Because when they go into the big chamber that's inside the geodesic dome, the first thing they see is like um, a planetarium. Yeah. And the planet that they're aiming for has got little sparks on it, which is Earth. Mm which is very reminiscent of when David goes into the planetarium on Prometheus. It goes in and he he activates this planetarium, which is a graphic user interface. It's really spectacular, but it's exactly the same. Mm. And he sees that planet Earth is going to be the target for the engineer's ship. And it's just incredibly reminiscent. Yeah. Well, old Ridley would have seen this, wouldn't he? He would have, actually. So the planet kind of re-energizes this weapon. 
and suddenly the the, the ship's scientists realize that the radiation levels are, are rising and there's something weird going on with gravity and they can't get away until one of the crew members, Dr. Lao Tzu, thinks that he can solve the problem. And then he's aided by Talua, the African yeah. communications expert. So they go out and they've basically got to go down a big hole where there's this sort of control panel down the big hole. Down the big hole. <laughs> and uh, anyway, one thing leads to another and Dr. Lao Tzu's spacesuit is compromised and he sort of suffocates and dies. Uh, but they managed to fix the problem so that... Reverse this, the polarity. They reverse the polarity. Very so, reminiscent of Kronos. So that, exactly. So that the spaceship can leave, but the spaceship then leaves with everybody else on it. It's launched without them launching it, isn't it? So well, kind of like it's the, launched by the planet. Because he's reversed the polarity of the planet's gravity. Right. When the guy's uh, spacesuit is is a compromise he calls out for another member of of the staff and he gets into another little rocket and fires off to where he is but as a consequence of that the main ship is thrown out into space his little spaceship gets thrown out of space he gets lost and the last the last scene is uh is Tolua yeah Tolua who who went down the hole to fix the problem who, who is then left on the planet. He, he saves the day. The person who played Tolua, Julius Ongewi, he was a medical student in Leipzig. He was, we, we don't know uh, if he was Nigerian or Kenyan, but he was the first black actor to be portrayed traveling in space. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So then the 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 spaceship returns to earth there are a few people down sad mm. but they've saved the day and um they've discovered that there there is an extraordinary or there was an extraordinary extraordinarily intelligent life beyond the planet earth okay so let's rate the robot amiga what did you the think robot, of the robot which gets a mention in the title sequence as an individual like robbie does oh brilliant like it's an actor yeah that's good i like that yeah, i think if i, I was too. to make a film with a robot in i would do that as well yeah so amiga what do we think i really liked it and i think it was uh it was he's autonomous yeah he's clever yeah he was at the forefront he was leading them yeah um he knew was what the weather was you knew, he knows what the weather was in several languages. Uh, yeah, so I liked Omega. I'd, I'd give him six. Six, yeah, that's fair. I wouldn't give him. I wouldn't give him any more than six. Well, if we did, he would be unshitted. Yeah, and I think that. In fact, I mean, I don't know. Is he a shit robot? I don't think he is a shit robot. No, I don't is think he? he is actually. I don't think he, he doesn't. Is he, he doesn't have. He doesn't have. I mean, he's got his name in the credits, but he doesn't do very much. No. He and delights, what, but he does that's delight. about it. He's yeah. a sort of a comic turn, isn't he? And in fact, when he's first, we first meet him, there's a little bit of a wah, 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 sort of yeah. score, isn't there? A little, little bit of funny music. Yeah. But I thought that he did all that he needed to do. Yeah. He, they made him, they, they made the robot so it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't cumbersome to move. It was very yeah. sort of, you know, agile. Wizard, very agile. To <sighs> need to move him up into. I mean, is he a shit robot? 
No, not really. I don't think he is, is he? <gasps> Are we giving him a seven? Let's get, I think we give him a pass. Yeah, I think we let's move him. Wow. On. Good. So uh, that is first spaceship on Venus, aka the Silent Star, done and dusted. So we will see you once again when we crack open another. A robot movie for our, our entertainment and enjoyment. Until then, have a lovely week or however long it is before we chat. Goodbye. Goodbye. Now everything is clear.